the sound of start. the sound of a whiskey bottle being opened is how we, we start. We start with a cork. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, one of the internet's podcasts that deals with cars in movies and TV and YouTube and stuff like that. I would argue that this is the most regular podcast that deals with cars and films and TV and movies and stuff like that, but others may differ. <laughs> On tonight's programme. We're going to be talking about the end of Top Gear, the end of the Grand Tour, and Chris Harris has written a book. <laughs> I mean, the production value here is just amazing. It's amazing. There Chris, Chris is I'm even wearing. Now. There we go. I'm fading it out by moving my phone away from the microphone. <laughs> There we go. Oh, shut up. There we go. <laughs> that was good. Very, very good. I think uh, Chris Harris is also wearing a William Woolard jumper in, tr- <laughs> in tribute to the end of BBC Pebble Mills Top Gear. It's just a very, very late tribute to the end of BBC Pebble Mills Top Gear. It is. It is. Um, you may have noticed, our regular listeners, that we haven't been around for a while because of, well, illness and building work at the auto movies, podcasts, palatial studios, and all the other stuff that gets in the way of, of doing these podcast things. But we are back. We are also making a slight change to our format because, frankly, some of our episodes last year got a bit silly. So what we're going to be doing is hopefully doing a few more episodes a year, but also keep them a bit shorter, a bit punchier. So we'll either focus on a review or we'll focus on what we've been watching or something like that. We'll keep them shorter and we'll keep them flowing, hopefully. But before we get into the meat of our Allman Brothers-themed news and discussion, I have a bit of a bit of an apology, a bit of a mea culpa. Because after our last episode, when I talked about Gran Turismo, one of our listeners, and I forget who, unfortunately, reached out and made a very good point that... Gran Turismo is based on historical events. It's not set in the past. So whoever said it, on reflection, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is based on events, I think it is the crucial bit. I think it still has a lot of other problems, but... This is the least of its problems, right? Yeah, you're you're whinging that, oh no, he turns up in a brand new GT3 RS. Yeah, um, which wasn't around at the time these events happened in the real world with the real Jan Mardenborough, that is not the problem that is going to help solve why <laughs> Gran Turismo is a big pile of suck. <laughs> You've now watched it since our last No, recording. I haven't. I haven't. I've tried to watch it three times and I have so far failed to get more than 10 minutes into the movie. Um, wow. Because, well, the first time I just sort of got to the very first bit and went, nope, 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 and turned it off. <laughs> and then the second bit, I got a little bit further and then got distracted by something else. I forget what, maybe there was some dust that needed cleaning. And then the third time I decided I was going to take a drink every time I saw a Nissan logo and I passed out <laughs> 10 minutes into it. I think that's that's damning with... Dumbing with very strong evidence. I'm go. I promise I will go try and get through it. I got as far as um, Orlando Bloom making his impassioned pitch to an empty auditorium with like two Nissan people in it about how they should get gamers, and even I didn't take him seriously. And this is a true story that actually happened. So heaven knows how they really got it through. <laughs> and then there's a bit after that, and then I really just went, "Oh my god, this is so shit." Um, and I've spoken to, to friends who are in the gaming industry who have pointed out that this is just a massive tax write-off for Nissan and, you know, they'll start giving yeah. it, they'll give it away on PlayStation for people and somehow recoup the losses because I think this was budgeted at 80 million and it made less than 80 million or maybe it just about crept over recouping its production costs, but it has not been a resounding wow. success for Nissan. So somehow they're going to have to recoup the costs Ah, I don't know. It making movies of video games is fraught with danger because by and large the video game experience does not tra- translate into the passive movie viewing experience. Mm. Over Christmas I watched Uncharted uh with my son and 
I'm a huge fan of the Uncharted franchise. That's another Sony franchise, another PlayStation game. And it's one of my favourite games. I've bought PlayStations 3, 4 and 5 in order to play these games. (laughs) And I love them to bits. And yet the movie was just such a mishmash of like ideas from all of the games stuffed together. The casting was terrible. It was just generic action film. There was nothing that set it apart from playing the game, apart from the fact that the games are better in every measurable way. The voice acting, <laughs> the I couldn't say the graphics, like this is real people. This is Tom Holland, who's a very charming actor, mm-hmm. but he's not Nathan Drake. And I think part of the problem with Gran Turismo is <laughs> it's, a, it's a car simulation game and you can't make a movie of that. And Jan Modern's story, fascinating though it is and interesting though it is, mm. is not suited to being shoved into a a film about Gran Turismo or film called Gran Turismo. You should do it differently. Um, I, I don't know. I will try and watch this film so I can give you a, a better review than I tried to get through it <laughs> and then got too drunk watching all the Nissan logos. Um I but I still curious. haven't managed to do it. I still haven't managed to do it, and I'm very sorry. I am curious to see what your take is on the um, on the action scenes. I mean, even putting aside the fact that the Hungara Ring is every single track that it claims to use, I'm curious as to, uh, for what you think to the just the way that it's been shot because. Since our last episode, and this is nothing that we'll talk about, maybe in the next episode, the Motor Film Awards actually gave this best drama feature. Um, and I'm just having a quick look to see if it was anything else. I don't think it was. Best stunts, Fast X. Mm, mm, not sure. What? Because didn't you say? Didn't we discuss that Mission Impossible was not nominated there? Because Mission Impossible had stunts in the same location as Fast X, the Spanish steps in Rome. Yeah, and yeah. Mission Impossible did them a lot better, like so much significantly better. better and wasn't nominated at all, which is quite a surprise. They've been nominated before and it's a, you know, like in every measurable way other than mm. not having, um, if well, it's in every measurable way other than not having Han in it, <laughs> Mission Impossible is just so much better than Fast the, the Mission Impossible series is so much better than the Fast series. And I say that as somebody who's watched all the Fast series, as you can go back and listen to in our archive. Um, <laughs> but honestly, the way to make Mission Impossible 8, I've lost count of which one, you know, the next Mission mm. Impossible, the way to make that better is to have Han in it and to not explain why <laughs> and to have him just be, have Sung Kang just turn up as Han from Fast... Snacking in the background. Snacking in the background because he would fit right in. <laughs> He would fit right in because the, the the fast movies are basically now just heisty spy movies, aren't they? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. just bring Han into he would just he would his chill demeanor would go so well with Tom Cruise's urge to throw himself off of buildings and cliffs and stuff. <laughs> I would I love, love that. That is how you. I don't see how you fix. That's how you make Mission Impossible even better. Um, <laughs> I just love the idea that. Like Han just goes from like franchise to franchise, just sort of fixing things. Walk, I mean, better than Sad Sack Han from Fast Ten, where they just couldn't figure out what to do with him um, until they go, "Hey, surprise, surprise! Your girlfriend's survived and can drive submarines now." <laughs> Which is what's going to happen in Fast Eleven. Fast Eleven, your seatbelts. That doesn't work. They missed that gag. Um, they did. Anyway, also speaking of Sun Kang, very very briefly, um, I'm, we are going to waffle and digress, but hopefully not as much as we have done before. Uh, I was watching Legit Streetcars, which is a great channel on YouTube. Yes, and Sun Kang just randomly pops up on that. It's a, um, Legit Streetcars is run by a, Gallic, a guy called Alex Palmieri, who is an ex AMG tech, um, huge American muscle guy, brilliant mechanic, and since I think I featured him on the channel, uh, his channel on the show an awfully long time ago, like very early episodes. And his channel has suddenly gone from strength to strength to strength. It's really, really hit its stride in terms of builds, in terms of viewing figures. And I was watching something he was building and then just randomly Sung Kang is in it. <laughs> and are, are we claiming uh, that it's all down to our it's endorsement? It's nothing to do with that whatsoever, but <laughs> it was really weird seeing like my movie... 
you know, movie characters and you know a, a, a legit movie star turn up on a YouTube, you know, in a YouTuber's garage, mm. um, and they had a good little rapport going. It was it's just cool. I love I love seeing these people whose work has interested me like right from the start become bigger and better and do more exciting things. And then this has got to a point where, you know, legit Hollywood stars are turning up mm-hmm. and eating snacks in in their <laughs> mechanics workshop. He's also very good on the Smoking Tire podcast when he's been on there. He's, he's a proper petrol head. And his own unique way too. Like it, not, mm. not in... Not in a pretend I'm a petrol head so I've bought a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and a and a and a he, uh, yeah. he he has his own tastes that are yeah. genuine and honest and I really I really like that it's like I really really love Matt Farah's um Porsche Spider that he's bought which is you know mm. strawberry pink and has a built motor in it and is very much like no this is what I want Yes. I am not a polisher. I am not a, everything must be exactly as it was from factory. I want a car that's like this in this color and the rest of you can you know, <laughs> get stuffed. That's, you know, that's legit. And I totally. really enjoy people who are true to themselves. Before we get on to Top Gear, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking, I have just poured the last, as you heard at the very start of the show, the last of my Balvenie 17-year-old double wood, uh, which has Ooh. been hanging around in the, the rack for ages and ages. And I looked at it and thought, that bottle needs finishing. So tonight is when I finish it. Excellent. And I don't have very much and I can't go and get any more. So this has got to last me the whole show. <laughs> I've got a dram of the Ardbeg Barbecue. <laughs> That's a good which, name. It is. Which apparently was made in conjunction with DJ Barbecue, according to the label. But, um, <laughs> what? Oh, it's some. It was some dude who was a mate of Jamie Oliver's who named himself DJ Barbecue and now like calls himself Gerald or something. And <laughs> DJ yeah, was, Barbecue, yeah, barbecue oh. that shit. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's got casks smoked with something hickory or mesquite or something, and it's it's gorgeous and it's a limited edition, and you can't buy any more of that either. Yeah, so, there's a uh, bummer. I was looking for a couple of whiskeys. Uh, that you recommended for me, the Nectar d'Or mm. and I another one that was very similar. And both of those have kind of like tripled in price since I bought a bottle. Oh, God. So yeah. I've kind of looked at them and went, oh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe in February. January is a long month. It is. It is. So since we last recorded, the big news, um, probably the least... The least unexpected, good English, me sentence good, <laughs> it was the... Um, <laughs> It was the end of Grand Tour, which I think we'd been circling for a while. We've we've said, how long can they keep this up? And mm. you know what? I don't think I actually saw this announced anywhere with big fanfare saying, no more Grand Tour, because I think Amazon are trying to find a way of it carrying on without Clarkson, Hammond and May, I believe. But I haven't seen like a proper huge announcement. I think they've just gone, this is the last one we'll do. And you know what? Fair enough. I think we've said before now, they can't do it forever. They're all getting on a bit. And I think also the acknowledgement that the format that they carried from 2001 Reboot Top Gear through to the Grand Tour and then sort of used Amazon money and kind of Clarkson's imagination to try and go bananas with some of their ideas. They've carried that through to its logical conclusion. Now, loads of people have said they jumped the shark years ago. In fact, I seem to remember reading an article on the Untercooler by some new young whippersnapper who was like, the Grand Tour has spent all of its time finding new ways to jump the shark, which I think is a teeny bit unfair. Mm. Uh, but then maybe I'm approaching this with, with old man energy of going, but I still like it. It's still Clarkson, <laughs> Hammond and May, just older and greyer and fatter like me. Um, but- Did you ever watch The Trip, the Rob Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan? No, I can't watch Steve Coogan in anything. It, I, I found that there was an element of, of that. So f- for those who haven't, haven't watched them, and they are a little particular pleasure of mine, is that essentially you've got Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan who are going on a MacGuffin of a trip. Um, but what's happened as the series has, uh, have gone on was like the first series was very much we're doing impressions. Here's me doing Michael Caine. Here's me doing Ronnie Corbett. And then as it's gone on, it's become more just like, we're getting old. 
what does it mean? How how do you feel these days? What's marriage like when you're older? And it becomes these two people that just go on an adventure, but it's not actually about the adventure. It's about those two people spending time together. And I think the thing with the Grand Tour, you can see bits where they've gone... Um, and I'm I'm thinking, like, in particular, the one... Was it... Um, I want to say it wasn't Bolivia. Was it Colombia? Where they had, like, the monster truck and the panda 4x4 and Jeremy was in the Jeep and they were trying to take photographs of animals. Yes. And you thought, yeah, that was a bit silly. But then you still get those bits where it's like, but it's still those guys. There's still a, there's still a magic there. There's still the mm. chemistry between them, and there's it's still there. Even you know, we I rewatched with, uh, I rewatched with my son, who's kind of old enough to watch a lot of this stuff now and and get into it. He's got into cars via computer games, not by mm. watching Top Gear or by any of the stuff I might have shown him or anything. He's got into cars because he's played Need for Speed and Forza Horizon on the xbox and mm. so now we kind of watch some of these old grand tours and he's like oh that's a mitsubishi evo why is james may crashed into a wall <laughs> <laughs> but we watched the whatever it was the which one was that one was iceland special yes um, and enjoyed all of it it's very silly and silly makes kids laugh Mm. And okay, I might go. Oh, that bit's so staged. Oh, the Celtic setting fire to it, and pushing him down the hill. That's so staged. <laughs> Doesn't matter to a ten-year-old. They think it's funny as hell, mm. and they don't notice the artifice. And it still works for a big audience. And there'll be a big hole in automotive filmmaking when they hang their driving shoes i don't know what the right the right <laughs> word is when they stop the end of that last special there's going to be an enormous hole left in automotive culture because that's mm. it no more clarkson hammond and may and you know we looked at that during the top gear sort of downtime after the clarkson incident uh, where they went away and then signed a deal with Amazon and out came the Grand Tour and so on. We had that period where we thought, well, what next? Mm. And now we're looking at it again, not just with the Grand Tour, but also the second part of the news that everybody will have heard, probably more so than the Grand Tour, is that the BBC are now, quote unquote, resting this format of Top Gear after Freddie Fintoff's fairly horrible accident that's left him with you know, permanent disfigurement and an, mm. an eight-figure settlement. <laughs> Or something, wow. well, no, a significant settlement from the BBC, and a, and a, in doing so, a tacit acknowledgement that it was their fault. Mm. It's they they've done what I think we all expected, which is to go. Top Gear needs to go away for a bit. And interestingly, the the most interesting take I've seen on this is James May on Radio Four, Radio Two, one of the programs interviewed about yeah. you know what what this means and he was very much of the opinion that I think we need to rethink how Top Gear is done because mm. we've been doing it this way for 20 years and unfortunately now is a really interesting time for the motor car <laughs> because <laughs> the motor part of the car is changing the what what powers those motors is changing mm. but on the other hand the concept of Top Gear as they did it is kind of worn out so you need to go and think of a different way of doing it. And there's been loads of takes. I mentioned that Intercooler article. Uh, I can't remember the, the author's name, Daniel something or other. But he was suggesting, go nerdy, go deep, do one film. And he was very much in favour of keeping Top Gear's Chris Harris, or now ex-Top Gear's Chris Harris, and having him just be a presenter and do all the nerdy stuff. Basically, Chris Harris on cars, but with a BBC massive budget. And I can see the naive, innocent approach to it and all I could think when I read that piece was you're so wrong you're wrong you're mm. wrong you're wrong <laughs> if you think that the BBC are going to sign off an enormous budget for something that is increasingly niche you are deluded beyond belief because the reason that Top Gear got bigger and bigger and bigger was became less about cars and more about entertainment and cars yes. were the cars were the channel through which they entertained you <coughs> And surreptitiously informed you, 
But as it got on, you know, the, the Grand Tour stopped doing car reviews and just yeah. went to doing adventure specials because that was easier. And mm. Top Gear increasingly in the sort of post-COVID world did fewer and fewer car reviews. They'd, they'd review a noteworthy supercar like you know, Richard, um, like Chris Harris reviewing the Mercedes AMG One or, you know, a, a notable hypercar of the time, but they wouldn't mm. go and do, oh, let's do a test with, with a, you know, a Ford Focus, you know, or something along <laughs> those lines. Test. All of that stuff has just been thrown out the window in the name of entertainment and constantly upping the stakes of that entertainment is what got Freddie Flintoff into that accident. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to miss Top Gear, but I'm not going to miss it that much because I have a feeling that what it needs is a new team of people. It needs to ditch all of the creative talent because there are names there who've been on the credits for years, if not decades, mm. who have been on the credits either for Top Gear when Clarkson, and Hammond and May were there or moved on to the Grand Tour with them in some kind of constant. And people who worked on Top Gear stayed on Top Gear and worked through the, the Chris Evans sort of slightly odd period and into the, the LeBlanc-Harris period and then through to the... Harris, Flintoff, and the other guy, whose name I've forgotten. Paddy McGuinness. Paddy McGuinness, yeah. Into that sort of what was current Top Gear. And I feel like you just need to go, right, you mm. just ditch everybody. I get why the Bieber resting it. And I, I don't disagree with the... I don't disagree with the idea of doing it. But I think if you... It shouldn't go away forever. Yeah. But when it comes back, it needs to be different like it did last time. Like they came back and it was significantly different. The hour long studio based, it was such a, I can remember watching those first episodes and going, okay, not everything works. And an hour seems like a long time to fill when you're used to (laughs) half an hour, but this is exciting. And the, the, you know, the, the, the tests of supercars on a runway, fantastic. And they just got better Mm. and better and better. And I feel like you want to come back with top gear and you want to keep whichever version of Jessica you choose to use <laughs> and the logo and that's it that's it no studio so- maybe don't have three presenters I know Chris Evans tried to do like 20 presenters and it didn't work well, yes. and uh, but I don't know so what would you do was- <laughs> If it, was, if, it was, if it was up to me, I would probably go down, the, go down the Chris Harris on Cars route just because that's what I want to watch. There was an interesting interview with Auto Alex and Tavarish where the question was put to, to Tavarish is, would you want to do Top Gear? And he went, well, on the one hand, if somebody says, do you want to do Top Gear? you've got to do Top Gear. Like Chris Harris says in his book, it's like, <laughs> you can't not do it, but... It's, it's like the Ghostbusters thing. When someone asks you if you're a god, you say <laughs> yes. That's what I'm thinking here, is if someone asks you to do Top Gear, you say yes. Exactly. Interestingly, um, and to tangent a little, uh, one of the two presenters on Mighty Carbots, which is a, an Australian mm. YouTube channel that I watch an awful lot, was asked to go and do a stint uh, presenting on Australia's version of Top Gear. And has, you know, they've recorded a bunch of stuff and content for the Mighty Car Mods channel. So yeah. that can continue while he's off doing that. But he was very much like, when, you are, when you're asked to do Top Gear, you do Top Gear. Yeah. But then Freddie also said, would you want to give up your creative freedom, give up your own platform, your own editing, give up the projects that you want to do in order to then go off and make somebody else's TV show. And I think the one thing that that really highlighted was the fact that when Top Gear was Top Gear was rebooted, it was Andy Wilman, Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, Richard Porter, they were essentially doing their own car nerd show for the BBC. They weren't... It wasn't done where somebody went, okay, I've got an idea for a show and we're going to go and cast some presenters and we're going to go and get some writers and we're going to get some researchers. And I wonder if there was an element of that with Top Gear towards the end... You're right. You're absolutely right in that the the original trio 
from that series were integral to the ideas that were put forward mm. and and the writing of the show. Because as we've said many, many times, they're all journalists. They're all writers. Yeah. They've all got ideas. Okay, Jeremy probably put forward a lot more than, say, James did. But they were all involved in the editorial process. They'll all come in with ideas. Whereas with the best will in the world, I can't see Paddy McGuinness going into the Top Gear office and saying, I've got a great idea, lads. He'll, Let, let's he'll, do a look at the Ferrari Colombo V12. He'll, well, not even that, but I think he's a television presenter in, in the, the kind of mould of, give me a script and I'll read it, give me a format mm. and I'll present it, but I'm not here to do the ideas. That's yeah. somebody else's job. Mm. Because he's not... I... You, I think you've hit on something in that it need and and Freddie's got it in that you are seeding. If you go with how Top Gear has been produced in other countries, mm. look at Top Gear at USA, which I've watched in many formats. Um, the best still being Tanner Faust, Rutledge Wood, and Adam Ferrara because they had chemistry, and mm. that you know they had great chemistry, and they took they like before. Um, Real Top Gear or OG Top Gear or any of the others kind of took, they took the idea of, you know what audiences want is adventures. So their their series very quickly got to, okay, we're all going to turn up and do an adventure in three different cars. And part of the joy was who chose what car and what they did with mm. it. And they still kept the reviews in there, but a lot of their series were centered around the adventure stuff. They ran with that. They had great chemistry, but I don't think any of them were coming up with the editorial ideas. Mm. Same thing for um, the Top Gear, probably the moment Chris Evans got involved. I imagine there would have been some ideas there, but a lot of the time they would have been leaning really heavily on the guys who've been around doing it with Clarkson, Hammond and May for 15 years by that point. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I, I still I still remember, and again, we're going to talk about Chris Harris's book in a minute. The first piece that he did, which was driving a BMW 1M, um, M2? No, would have been pre-M2. It was something, I do remember that, where he's asked, he does write about it wonderfully in his book. But yeah, the the piece where everyone commented, well, Chris Harris doesn't look comfortable doing mm. the kind of scripty, scripty, silly JP, somebody else's idea, effectively, of putting yes. on a hat with covered in wires that, dis- <laughs> that sought to measure out his excitement. Um, we all watched it going, oh, this does not look good. And, yeah. and full credit to him, Harris gave it the best try he could. He was game to make it work. And yeah. the same is true with lots of stuff there. He and Matt LeBlanc had a wonderful repartee and a back and forth. And I've said many times they were they were my favourite presenting duo mm. on post Clarkson, Hammond and May Top Gear. But even then, they you know they they threw him some curveballs when they reviewed the Aston Martin DB11. You know Matt LeBlanc's playing James LeBond, and Chris yeah. Harris is then cast as the Blofeld villain, and they get away with it. And and Harris is game for a laugh, but you get the impression this is basically out of his comfort zone, and he knows he's got to do it, but it's not what he really, really wants to be doing. What he wants to be doing is growing a beard in the next 10 minutes and then, you know, <laughs> going for a few skids with his mate Richard Tuttle. And talking about uh, the opinions of, of, of car writers from the early 80s. <laughs> um, so with the imminent end of, of, of Top well, the already Im- uh, end of Top Gear, I was going back and I was looking at clips of Top Gear on YouTube, looking through episode titles and stuff. What are your most sort of iconic memories? What you, are the, the things that you remember? Okay, I can give you... We, we talked about this before the show and, and you said, what are the definitive moments of the Clarks and Clarkson, Hammond and May era Top Gear? Because I'm going to choose that. Mm. I have, like I said, loved Harris and LeBlanc in, in Top Gear. I enjoyed the, the 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 last iteration of Top Gear, but for me, it's Clarkson, Hammond and May, I think, and, and almost everybody yep. else is going to agree. So for me, the three defining moments, not necessarily my favourite moments, but the defining moments are, in no particular order, <laughs> the Bugatti race. Yep. Hammond coming back from his injury after the jet plane crash. Yes. And the Botswana special. Botswana was on my list because I think that was that and Vietnam 
Um, oh, Vietnam is one two. of my absolute favorite. In fact, it might be one of my most rewatched episodes because it's so genuine. It's it really they're is. all out of their comfort zone, which means if there are scripted things, I don't care because there's so many unscripted, yeah. brilliant bits of just things happening and then responding in the way that they're going to respond. And it, it's just such a joy to watch. Mm. But I know a lot of people don't like it because it's about bikes, not cars. But for me, those defining moments, um, the Bugatti race, because it's all anyone was talking about, the Bugatti Veyron was the fastest car in the world oh, gosh, by yeah. a country mile. And then they go and race it. And, you know, it, it's full of instantly iconic moments. It's full of quotable moments. It's got a brilliant end to it. It's so brilliantly constructed and so suspenseful. And it is the archetypal race. I love mm. all the, the Top Gear races, but that one is probably the peak Top Gear race. Um, Hammond coming back from his jet crash. You know, I remember that happening. I remember reloading the BBC News website thinking, shit, I hope he survives. And then shit, mm. I hope Top Gear comes back. And then when it did, I was... I think they must have got peak viewing figures at the time then. You know, that was the moment where I think in, in Richard Porter's book, they described that their you know, their viewing figures went through the roof because oh, all God, of a yeah. sudden they were headline news, not for the show they made, but because one of the presenters nearly died and then mm. came back. And, you know, it was a staggering. That episode is kind of, oh, it's all right, but you're just waiting till the bit at the end where... Hammond comes back and talks through his jet plane crash. <laughs> and there is a wonderful moment where Clarkson sees that, you know, Hammond has reacted to the slide the jet plane has gone into. Sorry, the the, mm. the, the jet car's gone into and looked at it and gone, I could have held it. <laughs> Which is the most, it's a, it's slightly staged, but it's also the most Clarkson answer to this sort of thing. Um, it's... It's not a great episode of Top Gear, but it is an absolutely defining moment because that mm. is the moment where it stopped just being, you know, a popular for BBC Two niche show about cars and went on to be oh, the start of the juggernaut. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. start of the absolute juggernaut and the entertain, you know, the, the ratings behemoth that it became through their peak years. And the third one, the Botswana special was just that. That was the first special where they all went away and they did one show with nothing else in it. It's just a single show devoted to, I, we're going on somewhere ooh, nice. I don't think it was. Was it not the first one? Well, I thought the Arctic one was the first one. Oh, okay. you'd have to... The, you might be right. The Arctic Also, first, nerdy fact. Yeah, uh, I know what we, you're going to say too. Go on then. Go on. It's the first what? one that was shot in high def. It was, and it looked amazing. <laughs> it did, yes. And I seem to remember... I don't think I bought a high-def TV because of that, but I think I had a high-def TV and not long after it was the first episode of Top Gear that was shot that took advantage of it. And because Top Gear's cinematography has always been spectacular. Oh, God, yeah. You really notice the difference. Um, I, I was I was round at a friend's house playing poker and it was the, it was on in the corner and it's when you had, when you had BBC HD... And it basically was that episode of Top Gear and Hotel Babylon, which was, I think, the only things, and some nature documentary they shot in HD. And I kept losing hands because I kept watching the telly. Because <laughs> it was just like pretty icicles in HD. It was amazing. Yeah, but they yes. really shot it. Those those are the, the moments for me. The Botswana special, I think, because it was that, it felt like at the time, this is a new thing that we can do. And it was hugely entertaining. Yes. It, again, beautifully shot. And it gave you that thing of, okay, every series or every couple of series, we can do a special, which is just one film, an hour or so long, in a spectacular location with a loosely defined, you must get cars that are utterly unsuited <laughs> to this environment, which has led to things like the brilliant Vietnam special, the wonderful two-part Africa special, um, which, the less which, good India special, but all those kind uh, of things. And those are what set the tone for large portions of the Grand Tour. Which special was it that had the Volvo 850 in it? It that's was the Search the, for the that's Nile. The, that's the Africa special. Yeah. For some reason, you mentioned Jen Jeremy's comments just reminded me of one of my favourite bits I know you and me have shared a lot over the years. <laughs> I think I know what this is too. It's um, weather at Donington. And it's like, <laughs> so what does inboard suspension do? <laughs> it makes and everything Jeremy, better. <laughs> it just makes everything better. Uh, see, Specifically. I, yeah, I thought, see, I thought you were going to go with like things you don't need while exploring the Amazon Delta. <laughs> Number one, one a library. library. <laughs> <laughs> the 
looks like an itchy blanket. That, that blanket looks very itchy. Yes, it is an itchy blanket. It makes you very grateful for it. Uh, um, the, there's so many... What, what does the Inboss mention do? Many things. And also, it was Botswana that gave us... Um, Jeremy going, I'm really tired of being shouted at. I need a zesty drink. A zesty, is that really, Was that a zesty drink? No, see, shouted at with zesty drink is Africa special. What, what, oh, I don't oh, know. I don't, the river crossing. Yes, I couldn't tell you where the start of the zesty drink thing came from. <laughs> but yeah, there's all these little Let's things. Let's not get bogged down with who's tarty with who. Which is, I think, a Monty Python quote. Uh, <laughs> but there has been since been co-opted by Jeremy for lots and lots Isn't of things. True. Um, yeah, there's all those things. And for all that, I think the quality of the cinematography and mm. so on never really dipped. The, the humour, uh, the quotableness of it, the the, for want of a better word, the sort of clippable nature in in, in an mm. era of TikTok and Instagram and reels and all this kind of thing, I don't see those kind of things coming up from later iterations of Top Gear. It's always Clarkson, Hammond, and May. Yeah. Now I'm not on these platforms all the time. I uninstalled TikTok <laughs> because it was just too creepy for me. But in terms of the stuff that gets surfaced to me by the algorithm, it's it's always classic era stuff, and it could mm. be because they've gone, "Well, you're an old man." Yeah. You- <laughs> also, it's, I think it's nostalgia as well. It is the it's that shared joke. I mean, so from like for my sort of top three, and it's not even episodes. It's not even moments. It's just things that I think of when I think of of. Top Gear. One was the uh, Maserati Ferrari Dino uh, oh, yeah, Lamborghini. The 10K supercar test. The 10... 10 thousand pound I know, Lamborghini a very test. long time ago. Yeah, it's a Ferrari Dino, Which, a... Marac. Um, with an SS badge. And <laughs> yes. a Lamborghini... Jalpa? Is it a Lamborghini? I'm sure it was a Lamborghini. It's a it's a Ferrari. Clarkson has the Maserati. What does James yep. May have? It's a black something or other. Which which also um because well, I mean that, that was the thing. It's like those lines where he'd like he turned up on a on a on a tow truck and it was just like did it break down? He said no, it just ran out of electricity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, um, let me have a look now. So there was I mean, that for me is like the classic. You've got to get from here to over there. And you've got things like... Um, I saw a, a, a YouTube video that was clips of... Edited clips of when all the, the, the guys come together in their cars. And it was from all sorts of challenges. They were all just sort of thrown in. And they were like, you know, what's this? Well, you know, I see you bought a Volvo. Yes, how much did it cost you? £395 taxed and tested. And now I'm just looking at it going... The cheapest car you can buy on Auto Trader is like three grand for parts. I know it's insane. It was a Lamborghini. It was a Lamborghini Uraco. Uraco. That's the one. That's um, the one. But yes, um, that's a remarkable. That's one of the. I seem to remember one of the episodes. Um, a friend of mine texted me on a New Year's Day, totally out of the blue, years and years ago. I've told this story on here before, but I was hung over to the back teeth somewhere in Cornwall or Devon after a New Year's Eve celebration, and I got a text from my mate Dale in America saying, if you had to play one episode of Top Gear to somebody to explain what it was, what episode would it be? And mm. even though I was just, I couldn't even see straight due to being hung over, <laughs> I think I texted him back, 10K Supercar Card Challenge, yep. Supercars to uh, France to see the, the Milan yep. Bridge, or the Winter Olympics. Those are my three any three of those would give you, this is what Top Gear, that era of, with those presenters, this is what it is. And that's never changed. I think that's, I think that's a very, very good, very, very good list. It's a slightly different question to the defining moments one, but it is, you know, those are the things, if you wanted to go, what's Top Gear in one episode? You show mm. them one of those, or one film, you show them one of those three. Yep. And the the thing is as well, there's such depth and it's it's a bit like um over Christmas I watched the Morecambe and Wise Christmas special. Um p- pokey British reference. And because Morecambe and Wise comedy duo from the seventies and eighties, their Christmas specials by the end were 
stuff of legend. I mean, the viewing figures they got were just astronomical. But if you go back and watch all of their shows, there are hits and there are misses all the way through. But it just built throughout their careers. They just got better and better and better till they got to this sort of pinnacle. And I kind of feel like that's what happened with with Top Gear was that, you know, there's like the V8 blender and there's, you know, the stuff that they did in the studio and there was the thing that worked with Grand Tour where they tried to smuggle Richard Hammond in the bumper of an a, uh, in an Audi, Audi TT. But my God, when it hit those peaks, it was just iconic. Yeah, and I think those, there weren't... I think when, when the... the- Clarkson incident happened that series was a was on shaping up to have real return to form mm. because there's some great episodes in there the episode where they take big American trucks to rescue Richard Hammond off the side of a, a um, yes a, a mountain in the snow is hilarious absolutely brilliant and not and- least because I have a version I downloaded off of YouTube uh, sorry not YouTube um, off of iTunes which yes. has all the swearing in it so apart from one particular word, which I'm sure you can imagine, um, <laughs> those of you who are fans of short Anglo-Saxon terminology, every other swear word is in it. So you get to hear exactly what Richard Hammond is saying, <laughs> unlike and, all and, the beeps. But also, was- the um, before I forget, the, the last episode, the one where they actually kind of released after the fact with Hammond and May in a studio with a big elephant just yes. over their shoulders, which I know is your favourite visual gag. It is. But the... Um, <laughs> They do the test of four by fours, like cheap for like a hundred oh, quid or a thousand pounds or whatever. With a Vitara and with a Suzuki, Suzuki Vitara X- and a Jeep Frontera and uh, the Vauxhall Frontera, which com- is full of great Top Gear gags, like you know, just them opening the back of the the um, the Vauxhall and Hammond saying, "All I can hear is just victim," and Clarkson <laughs> saying in that wonderful, <laughs> unconvincing tone. They're not murderous cars. <laughs> well, meaning the exact opposite, that they are murderous cars or... Yeah. died with a bit... Where... <laughs> See, I forgot what I was going to say. Was that one also where the Frontera cost them like 100 quid and it had a 100 quid clutch in it? So basically you got a brand new clutch in a Vauxhall for free. <laughs> But the the thing with the thing with that, <laughs> oh, God, sorry, oh, there's a line in there that just kills me. <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut this because it's just too stupid. But there's no. a, there's a moment in in that intro, which is another one of those three of them turning up mm. with cars and then mocking one another. <laughs> and I think Clarkson. Or- <laughs> Look for 140 quid. I wouldn't care if it said dog dirt on the grill. It pretty much does. <laughs> <laughs> the way it's delivered is just three mates mocking one another yeah down the pub or near the pub and that is what they've done and that's the the Harris McGuinness Flintoff mm. had that three mates mocking one them down the pub but they didn't have the the cast of always felt like someone else had written it see the the thing that the the other one that I remembered, and you've just you've just reminded me, with and it was the like the Jaguar Grand Tour episode, um, as well. But the the one I, I always remember and I like, and not just because I'm from the north where we all have whippets and consumption, was Jeremy driving the Robin Reliant, where he just kept rolling over, and he just happened to be in front of like Phil Oakey from the Human League or Peter Stringfellow. You know that that and was written by Clarkson. You know that that one really was. You only was. like it because you're just like I know that bit of Sheffield. I well, know that yes, bit of Sheffield. There is there is that, <laughs> but, but it's but that you're is, right. It was it was that thing where they're doing a joke, and like the Jaguar episode of Grand Tour, which could have come off as really just we're being stupid, but they're going to go, here's the joke. You come with us. We know we're being silly. You know we're being silly. We're going to laugh at this together. And I think that ability in the writing, in the performance, in the editing is such a special thing because it makes it really inclusive and you're not just mocking something. You are with love 
celebrating it in a way that is communal and inclusive and lovely. And the fact that the late Harry Gratian from Look North rolled Jeremy Clarkson back onto his... And it has it has my other favourite Top Gear visual joke, which is... Um, when he decides he's going to, um, he's going to fix it, and he goes, you know, we we went to the we we, we um, what was it? We sort of went to the garage and cued the music, and it starts playing the A Team theme tune. And as he drives in, the front wheel of a Robin Ryan just falls into, into the, the inspection, inspection pistol. <laughs> Interestingly, and on the music that, stops. yeah, on that on that note, when I was watching some of these episodes with my son quite recently, I had to explain to him what the A Team music bit was. <laughs> <laughs> he's like why oh, are they what, what's this and I then had to explain the concept of the A-team to him um, oh, we're very old I think here's the thing with all this if you're going to follow up all of this the key thing is you can't so don't try yeah you can't do it yeah. better than they did because it's not your idea so what you actually need to do is go away and think what is Go away and do what Wilman and Clarkson did when they reinvented Top Gear after it used to be half an hour long and, mm. you know, ha- had a completely different kind of feel and format to it. You've got to go away and go, right, What is what should Top Gear be in a world where we're increasingly driving EVs on a day-to-day basis, where hybrids are in Formula One, where, mm. you know, batteries are... The, the means of transport that the the governments would like us to use, but also have major problems with rare earth metals and recycling and, and so on and so on. What is Top Gear when it's not three blokes arsing around? Do you go, okay, well, it should go back to being like it was in Pebble Mill. Do you go the factual informative mm. route? Do you go... I, I well, just think also, you've got to get away from three blokes asking about. I think that is the key thing you, you, to start yeah. with, at least. You have to go away from that because but, you'll constantly be judged against them and you will constantly be found wanting. It doesn't matter how good you are. You hmm. won't be as good as they were because it's their thing you're doing. But also, the challenge now is you've also got to compete with YouTube because my, I saw an interview with Mike Brewer and he was saying... Like wheeler dealers were buying cars, doing them up and selling them 20 years ago before YouTube. Now, if you want to rebuild a supercar, there are hundreds of channels. If you want to go driving, if you want to see a car review, all of this stuff now exists. So not only have you got to come up with something that is potentially worthy of the name, and <clears throat> I've we, we need to come on to Top Gear later on, when we get to our YouTube picks for reasons I shall explain, but you've got to do something where it works on TV. It's not trying to be YouTube. It's not trying to compete with YouTube. It is its own thing. And the fact that you've now got to think in those terms, Oh, I, I would not want to be a TV exec trying to do that these days. But on the other hand, if you find a team of creatives who relish a challenge and go, you know what? I'm up for God, that. Yes. I've got some ideas. Then you are going to be in for, you know, and if you're given the keys to Top Gear and told you, oh. you can do what you want in a few years time, because they're not going to rest it forever. It's no. too well-known a brand and it's, it's too interesting a time, but what they have to do is not try and reproduce the, the magic of the past, mm. which is unfortunately what they've been trying to do for the last Nearly ten years since since mm. um, Clarkson, Hammond, and May left, which which brings us on to quite neatly Chris Harris's book, which he's released recently, Variable Valve Timing, which is the most appropriately nerdy title I can imagine. You read it, didn't you? I listened to it on Audible, narrated by Chris Harris. I read it in half a day. Uh, I think. I was going to ask for it for Christmas from somebody and then ended up just going and buying it. I did try and buy it from an actual bookshop, but none of them had it. So I had to order it from the evil Amazon. (laughs) But yeah, I read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, For someone who knows as much about um, Harris's career and has followed him from Autocar and then onto YouTube and then onto all the things he's done since then, 
you know, I, I could have, this could have been four times as long and in oh God, you yeah. know, way more detail, but that's not the kind of book that people buy for other people at Christmas. I really enjoyed it. I thought there was a really interesting insight into how he felt moving from doing his own stuff, like you say, with the creative freedom mm. and, you know, working with the people you want to work with on ideas that you want to do, moving to Top Gear where you are a small cog in a big machine. Even if you're the presenter at that point, in that iteration of Top Gear, you were a very small cog in a very big machine and you didn't have the power to to say what to do and what you wanted to present and so on and so on. I thought that was fascinating. I found the sort of the, the story of the journey into car journalism quite um quite interesting because it's the kind of thing you just can't do now that just there's that route mm. into into journalism in general is closed to anybody the idea of of being given a second chance on a weekly magazine just based on going to the person saying please <laughs> um i'm paraphrasing here but I, it was a really good read. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I could have read a much longer version of the book um yeah. What's the audiobook like? Because I know two or three people who have gone through and listened to the audiobook rather than actually reading the, the written text. So I tend to look for audiobooks that are read by the author. Notably, and on that bombshell, is not read in its entirety by Richard Porter, which I think is, is very, very sad. It's a weird one. He introduces it and then somebody yeah. else reads it. And I'm kind of like, no, I want to hear Richard Porter read it. Yeah. I could, I, I, even reading it, I, I read it in his voice. I think there is... The subject of the book, it kind of... I think it roughly breaks down into half his life story and half the car stuff... And there are clearly he he brings emotion and enthusiasm to what he reads, and I think there are elements of the book, particularly where he's talking about his parents, particularly where he's talking about his upbringing, and the the, the just the warmth and fondness that he has for both of his parents comes through in absolute spades and there were times I mean I was driving around listening to it and there were times when I just wanted to give him a hug because not only were his words clearly personal and emotional but they were captured in the recording as well Um, but it is absolutely that thing of when he talks about you know a friend of his at school having an E29 5 series and all of this sort of stuff, it's hearing it in his voice is exactly what you would have heard reading the words, knowing the way that he talks. And the thing that I came away from most of all is I, I've done two things. I've listened to his book and I've been clearing out old magazines and flicking through and just finding stuff that he's written. And I think Chris is great on video, on TV. I think he's he's very good at talking, um, but I wish he would write. I would love to get a compendium of you know, like the Bolgin book, Bolgin book, yeah, like the um, uh, the collection of Times columns from Clarkson and from um, James May. I would just love him to sit down and craft words and thoughts about cars. I kind of have that in a set of compendiums from uh, GT Porsche back when mm. um, Stuart Gallagher used to be the editor and I used to write in their um, garage updates about various cars I had. And I think we were going on our way to the Nürburgring 24 one year yeah. and we stopped in to see Stu and he handed us some copies of these compendium books Porsche you know Porsche GC cars so I've got a few of those and there's a surprising number of articles from Chris Harris when he wrote regularly for GT Porsche magazine so there's a whole compendium of his writing on RS Porsches which is a a particular um, you know a a, a particular interest of his Mm. they're really good and there's I've got quite a few of his 
um, writings in Evo magazine for where he was only there for a relatively short period of time and not always a comfortable time, judging by what he wrote in the book. Yes. But the writing's still great. And you're right. I miss Harris, the journalist, as opposed to Harris, the TV presenter. And you get it. You get it in some degree when he does his previously Chris Harris on cars, currently Chris Harris driving collecting cars. Yeah. You know, get that stuff. And if you want to hear him eulogize about the the details of cars, then just listen to the Collecting Addicts podcast because you get like pure unfiltered car nerdery to the nth degree on that podcast, not only from Harris, but from a bunch of his mates too. And it's it's wonderful. But yes, the book is clearly written and aimed at a slightly less nerdy audience than I think you or I might want. Yeah. But it's a a good read. I enjoyed it. It's a good read, and I'm sure it's going to be available half price in nearest good and evil bookshops. So if you (laughs) haven't read it, grab a copy, because it's really worth it. Uh, Moving on. Let's move on. Let's do, like, one YouTube pick or one one video that everyone should go away and watch. Or, wait, are we going to keep Henry... We've got to keep Henry. We're going to keep Henry. He's All part right. of the furniture. That's sorry, true. Henry. <laughs> He's not actually He's a part of the furniture. Piece of furniture. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not really fair. But we will. All right, we'll we'll keep with with uh, what's Henry Catchpole been up to? Because lots of things with with Haggerty. What did you want to call out? So the one that dropped literally today was driving the RML short wheelbase, the tribute to the Ferrari 250 GT. Um, beautiful, of course. Made me want one absolutely worth watch what i will highlight though for our picks because rather than having picks each we're now just going to have a consolidated uh, consolidated pick in one simple repayment which is the for videos over christmas i think possibly before christmas top gear started doing i want to call it top gear america but it's not top gear america it's jethro and is it it jack ricks he's doing it with it is jack yeah where they do a bit of a studio bit. It's like a half-hour episode on YouTube focused on stuff in America, which Jethro does quite a lot of these days because he's he's out there a lot and he's doing a lot of stuff with... He's um, basically a secret American at this point. With Dax, yes. Also, on a slight tangent, the F1 with DRS podcast, which is one of Dax Shepard's podcasts, which has Jethro on it, is lovely. It's just a group of mates talking about F1. And I strongly recommend it. But these videos, it feels like a magazine show. It feels like something interesting with cars that you haven't seen before, with good presenters, with great cinematography, well worth a watch. Yeah, I watch those. I watch the uh, Jethro Drives, Travis Pastrana's Subaru. Mm. I like the, the sort of, what do they call it? I can't the, remember. The- uh, it's the Jim Carner car, but yes. it was called a Subaru. It's sort, of, it sort of like a Bunty or something. Yeah. Some 80s. It's, anyway, yes. Yeah, that one anyway. And it was really fascinating hearing, because I think Travis takes Jethro out and describes how to do all these manoeuvres. The sort yeah. of, um, the, the, the Jim Carner type manoeuvres, the, the reverse into a corner and all that kind of stuff. Describes mm. how he does them while he's driving and showing Jethro how to do it. So, you know, <laughs> Jethro is grinning like an idiot because he's getting a passenger lap and tuition from Travis Pastrana. And then he gets to go and try himself. Really, really good. Um, I, you know, I've, it's been so much fun watching Jethro do the, the unfortunately short-lived Top Gear USA, Top Gear America mm. with um, Dax and... Other guy, For, ah. R- Rob Ferrara. No, no you're thinking uh, uh, hot tub time machine guy. Yeah. Oh, cack. Uh, uh, Rob well, Cordroy. That's it. I was thinking of Rob Cohen, but that's no. That's the guy that directed the first Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> <clears throat> but yes, uh, those are really good. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> um, for our channel pick, Driver Sixty One, which is Scott Mansell's channel, they've started a project towards the end of last year, where they planned to drive a car upside down. A Formula One car. So this is... Well, a Formula car. A Formula car, yes. A single-seater car. This is to actually physically try the thing that has been spouted in numerous articles, that a Formula One car developed so much downforce it could drive on the roof of the (laughs) Monaco tunnel. And this is now actually going, well, actually, you know what? Shit, this is really hard. Engines don't like working upside down. Um, how do you get upside down when you're one way up? You know, yep. when they do it in the Italian job, the guy nearly rolls it. <laughs> <laughs> and also things like 
so they've got not only Scott, they've got other people. They've got Willem Tote, who used to be technical director at Sauber, amongst others, who's written some really interesting um, essays on LinkedIn about his time at Benetton in particular. Did he write Same about thing- Option 14? No, but he did uh, – Option 13. He did write about <laughs> um, Schumacher had two LCD displays just below his visor, um, and they could do things like – corner entry and exit speed comparatively. Anyway, um, one thing that he's talking about is they, they they plan to build essentially a kind of half tunnel so that this formula car can, uh, it's a hill climb something or other, can drive along and then basically go upside down to the right, I guess. But then rather than doing a full barrel roll, so they can also see it better, they then got to go left back down the hill and things like contact patches of tyres, you've got to actually have the right camber so that when it goes, when it starts going up, you're not just like on the shoulder of the tyre. And as you go and, as you move around this circle, the aero changes because suddenly the gap between the front wing and the floor, the centre of the front wing, it's much is bigger because you're on a you're on a curved surface. Exactly compared to yeah. the end plates. And all of this sort of stuff, which is really... It's all the stuff that just doesn't get thought about when this this fact is trotted out. It's just a pure, yes, it develops more downforce than it weighs. Therefore, it would theoretically be able to go upside down. But actually, no, it won't because nothing works. (laughs) But now they're going to go, you know what, let's actually do this, which feels like the kind of thing that Red Bull should have done years ago. Oh, God, yes. Like yeah. really, you guys have missed a trick here. But never mind. I've been I've been sort of idly watching some of these episodes, not all of them, but watching some of them, and and found it quite interesting to see that someone's actually going to give it a go. So uh, best yeah. of luck to them. And I wait to see if it actually does work, or if he just sort of gets there, and the engine conks out, and he lands on his head. Uh, I'm fairly yes. sure there will be mitigating. Um, things to stop that from happening because that would be horrible so yes best of luck for that one but that's that's the channel to go and check out and and videos yes go and watch all those things we suggested go and check out some old episodes of top gear quite frankly because definitely it's not coming back anytime soon so may as well go and grab what's on the iplayer if you're in the uk or have access to such a thing um because who knows when they're going to take it off it's very true so enjoy it um, it was great while it lasted and I can't say I disagree with the Beeb's decision to take it away so you know R.I.P. Top Gear R.I.P. The Grand Tour and long live both let's see what comes next in the meantime we're still going to be here yammering on about stuff we found on YouTube so <laughs> with that in mind thank you all very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one Beep.